Great to be with you this morning, and I do bring greetings from Heritage OPC in Wilmington. Thankful for this occasion of Presbytery to exchange pulpits. As we gather around the word this morning, as we look to hear a word from heaven, um, ask you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 19. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. In response, let us sing, O God, to us show mercy, Trinity hymnal number 437. be seated. As we gather around God's word, let us go to him now in prayer. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of the covenant, God of our fathers, God of our children, God of nature, God of grace, we come to you this morning asking that you would give us the ear of the learned that we might understand and apply your word I pray, Lord, that you'd give me as your servant the tongue of the learned, that I might speak a word in season to him who is weary. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon me, upon your people. Lord, even as you inhabit the praises of your people, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine the pages of Holy Scripture, that even as sun, moon, and stars illumine the night sky and the daytime, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit the glory spirit would shine upon the pages of Holy Scripture, indeed shine into our hearts, that we might understand your word. O Lord, we pray that you would give us a sight and a savor of the glory of heaven's king. Lord, may we see Jesus, the king in his beauty. We pray this in his strong and matchless name. Amen. Amen. As you may have wondered, uh, we are going through Genesis as a series in our congregation at Heritage, and so you're receiving some of the overflow of that study in our midst. And this morning, we read of day four. And at the outset, I want to ask you what might seem like an obvious question, but it's not. What is a star? If you go out of an evening and look up at the sky and gaze upon the, the celestial lights, what is a star? Well, according to Sky and Telescope magazine, a star is a luminous ball 
of gas, mostly hydrogen and helium, held together by its own gravity. Is that true? Is that true? Well, it's true as far as it goes, but congregation of the Lord Jesus, I suggest to you that it's not the whole truth. There's actually more to the story. And to illustrate that, I'm going to quote from the book, The Voyage of the Don Treader, where the character uh, Ramandu tells the ship's company that he is a star, a star at rest, to which the character Eustace responds, in our world... A star is a huge ball of flaming gas. It sounds very similar to Sky and Telescope magazine's definition. A luminous ball of gas, a huge ball of flaming gas. But listen to Ramandu's gentle correction. Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. Indeed, there's more to the story. A scientific investigation can tell us about a a star's composition, its makeup, but it cannot disclose to us its identity or its purpose. It's not enough to know the facts. We have to interpret the facts to know what a star is at its heart and why it exists We have to go to the Bible, to God's inspired account of creation. And that brings us to the text we just read in Genesis chapter 1, day 4 of creation week, as God shifts his activity from forming his house on days 1 to 3 to then filling and furnishing that house on days 4 to 6. Here... Our sovereign Lord moves from establishing kingdoms and realms of heaven, earth, and sea to now establishing kings or rulers over those various domains. In this case, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Well, what are they? Not merely, narrowly speaking, according to scientific investigation, but what are they according to the word of God? And congregation, I'm going to argue this morning that they are the lights of God's heavenly lampstand created to rule over the day and over the night. These are cosmic clocks and calendars, ethereal kings and rulers, celestial signs and symbols. These are tokens that point us to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That is what and why they are. And so this morning, we're going to look at the identity and the purpose of the heavenly lights, what they are and why they were created. First, The identity of the heavenly bodies. What are they? Well, if you look at this passage, they are called lights or luminaries. Look at verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. 
It doesn't call them flaming balls of gas composed of hydrogen and helium held together by their own gravity, however true that may be in a narrow scientific sense, but they are called lights, luminaries, light bearers, indeed two great lights, the greater light, the sun, to rule over the day, the lesser light, the moon, to rule over the night, plus the stars. And just think for a moment of the cosmic understatement of this passage. Oh, and the stars also. Not only the sun and the moon, but also the stars lighting up the sky. Now, what's interesting, congregation, is the word that Moses uses here is not just any old word. This word for light or luminary or light bearer is the same word that Moses would later use of the lamps of the menorah in the tabernacle and later temple. Just as the seven-branched menorah lit up the tabernacle space, God is telling us that sun, moon, and stars illuminate a kind of cosmic temple, that these are not just flaming balls of gas, In a certain galaxy, no, these are God's lights in his heavenly lampstand. And I want to encourage you, the next time you look up at the sky, whether it's the the glare of noonday, the black of midnight, think about sun, moon, and stars this way. Not merely in a narrowly scientific sense, but as the lights, the lamps, of God's heavenly menorah. It has a way of of baptizing our imaginations. It has a way of giving us a detox to a kind of narrow scientism and materialism. It has a way of injecting a, a supernatural worldview into the way we view things that we observe in our daily life, realizing that this is under the sway of a heavenly king. This is what they are, the lights of God's heavenly lampstand. There's a second follow-up question, not only of identity, but of purpose. Why did God create these heavenly lights? This is actually a very good question, because if you read day one, In light of day four, which the narrative invites us to do, you might wonder, are sun, moon, and stars redundant? Because on day one, God said, let there be light, and there was light. The outshining of God's glory lit up that dark space. If you recall, in the very beginning, it was It was empty, it was formless, it was dark. And the very first thing God did was to turn on the lights of his his cosmic house with the creation of light. And so you might say, why is he now creating these light bearers of sun and of moon and of stars? Because the day-night evening-morning cycle has been operational for three days. Why these additional light sources? Why were they created? 
Look at verse 14 again. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Uh, then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. If we read those verses, uh, not only are they structured in a kind of V shape, but they have a number of references to purpose. Whether in the word two or in the word four, God is revealing to us why he made these heavenly bodies. And commentators have identified ten purpose statements signaled by the words two or four. First, to divide the day from the night. Second, for signs and seasons. Third, for days and years. Four, for lights in the firmament. Five, to give light on the earth. Six, to rule the day. Seven, to rule the night. Eight, to give light on the earth. Nine, to rule over the day and over the night. Ten, to divide the lights from the darkness. Uh, congregation, however redundant sun, moon, and stars may at first appear, when we consider the fact that God's glory has already shown out and established day and night, God looks at what he has done and says, this is good. This is good. Now, rather than going through each of these 10 statements, I want to try to summarize what the Bible is teaching here with four statements concerning the function, the purpose, the rationale of these heavenly lights. First, the heavenly lights, in terms of their purpose, were created to mark time. They were created to mark time. In verse 14, we read that this includes daily rhythms to divide day from night. We have implied monthly rhythms as the moon established a kind of lunar calendar. We have seasonal rhythms for signs and seasons, as well as annual rhythms for days and for years. God created sun, moon, and stars for the purpose of serving as cosmic clocks and calendars created to mark Time. And if you think about the ancient world, how did people for centuries, for millennia, mark time? You have the equinoxes, you have the solstices, you have the ancient practice of sundials. Now, some, um, or rather, as we look at this, it's not really just time. It's actually a kind of liturgical time associated with worship. And I say that um, for a couple reasons. First of all, we've already been primed that this is not just any kind of timekeeping because, again, sun, moon, and stars are the lights of God's heavenly lampstand, the same word used for the lamps in the menorah. But the, the word here for seasons is fascinating. Um, it's not just a word that speaks of summer 
winter, spring, and fall. It could actually be translated as festival times. This was a word that was used for special times, meeting times between God and his people that later on in Israel's history would include things like Sabbath, Passover, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. Not just keeping time, but keeping liturgical time associated with worship. And I've already mentioned this, but Israel, uh, later on in the Bible storyline, had a lunar calendar based upon the moon, where the first day of the month, the 15th day of the month, were very important because you had full moon and new moon. God's liturgical calendar, we could say, was hardwired, baked in to the universe. As we'll see on day seven, the very first thing that God set apart was time. You ever think about that? Not just setting apart an object, but setting apart sacred time when he established the Sabbath day. Sun, moon, and stars, when you look up at the sky, they were created to mark time as cosmic clocks and calendars. On this point, just a brief word of application for us on time and technology. Time and technology. Anytime you have an advancement in technology, uh, something is gained, but something is often lost when it comes to our understanding of time. Just to give a historical example, the Industrial Revolution brought many gains But there was also a diminishing of the significance of the agricultural seasons. As people went to factories and they had electric lights, um, the sense of light and darkness in terms of when you work became less significant. And seed time and harvest, those kinds of agricultural seasons became diminished. Uh, Think about the invention of the watch. Uh, People outside the United States will often say that Americans have gods on their wrists, the tyranny of time driving their schedule, where everybody's got a watch, but nobody's got any time. Uh, Or think now of the digital or information revolution. Um, Just think for a moment, in terms of time and technology, how much time do you spend looking at a screen every day? How has advancements in technology affected your use of time? I'll give you a few figures. In 2023, uh, the global and national average is about seven hours every day. Uh, That number varies a bit on location and uh, age group. Uh, For example, Gen Z spends about nine hours on screen time every day. And for some reason, I have no idea, but uh, South Africans spend almost 11 hours per day looking at an iPhone, a laptop, or a tablet. It makes me wonder, as we advance in technology, what are we losing when it comes to the significance of time? To quote the great Hebrew scholar Abraham Heschel, He says, technical civilization is man's conquest of space. It is a triumph frequently achieved by sacrificing an essential ingredient of existence, namely time. In technical civilization, we expend time to gain space, but time is the heart of existence. It is not a thing that lends significance to a moment. It is the moment 
that lends significance to things. Uh, now, just to be clear, I am not against the Industrial Revolution. I'm not against digital um, technology. Um, but it's good to remember that behind your Apple Watch, behind your Google Calendar, there is God's original cosmic clocks and calendars, the sun, the moon, and the stars created to mark time. And so one of my questions this morning for you as God's people is simply this, is your soul attuned to the daily, weekly, monthly, seasonal, and yearly rhythms of God's timekeepers in the sky. There's a time to work and a time to rest every day. There's evening, morning, day, and night. There's a time to work and there's also a time to rest when it comes to our weekly rhythm. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. There's a time to sow. There's a time to reap across the seasons. Now, I have a man in my church who is a farmer, and so agricultural seasons are very important to him. But even if you're not actively farming, you can think about this in terms of different seasons of life. What season of life are you in as a parent? As a grandparent, as a son, daughter, student, employee, what season are you in? And is your soul attuned to the order of God's rhythms? Do we take time to reflect on the brevity of life with every passing year? That as we move round the sun in the earth's annual journey, are we reflecting on the brevity of life? Are we living under the aspect of eternity? And perhaps some of you, the application to a passage like this is that you need to learn to slow down. You need to learn to slow down, to attune yourself to God's rhythms Perhaps you need to invest your time more wisely, redeem the time. But whatever the applications the Holy Spirit brings to the surface, my exhortation is for you to synchronize your life with God's cosmic clocks and calendars. They were created to mark time. There's a second purpose from this passage, and that is the heavenly lights were created to rule. Not merely to mark time, but to rule. And this is very clear, first of all, in verse 16, where we read that there is a greater light, the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser light, the moon, created to rule the night. And then in verse 18, we read to rule over the day and over the night, more generally, covering all of the heavenly lights. And what's interesting here is that they were created to rule with delegated authority. Remember I said that back on day one, God established day and night, evening and morning, simply with the, the, the outshining of his own glory. But here, God takes the royal task of illumination, 
And he delegates it to sun, moon, and stars. You read of this in Psalm 136. To him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule the day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. Uh, the poet Edmund Spencer liked to call nature God's deputy, where the high king deputizes sun, moon, and stars with delegated authority to be light bearers in his world, to be ethereal kings and rulers in the sky under the high king. That's a second purpose. And I would just say in passing that if God does not micromanage his creation but delights to delegate, how much more should we as creatures not micromanage other people but learn to delegate appropriately to those under our jurisdiction. That's the second purpose, created to rule. There's a third one. The heavenly lights were created to symbolize spiritual and political realities. Go back to verse 14, where we read that they were created, they were made for signs. We could say they were made for symbols. Now, as I say that, we have to be very careful that we don't go down the garden path toward the, the speculative foolishness of the zodiac and astrology. Uh, pagans love to look at sun, moon, and stars and either worship them or draw strange speculative theories from them. And the Bible clearly condemns um, in Deuteronomy 18, Isaiah 8, uh, the foolishness of astrology and superstition. And yet, the Bible does say that sun, moon, and stars are made for signs. They symbolize certain realities. And as you go through the Bible, far beyond Genesis chapter 1, we find there's often a parallel between the celestial bodies and kings, between stars and angels, between stars and saints. There's a connection. There's a kind of symbolism. Job 38.7, the morning stars sing and the sons of God shout for joy. In that passage, uh, there's not, if, if there is an identification, whether or not there is, there's at least a close association between the morning stars and the sons of God. That when you look up at the heavenly host of sun, moon, and stars, it points you to the angelic host, to the seraphim, the cherubim, the ophanim, the living creatures, the four and twenty elders, this angelic host associated with the stars. Uh, the New Bible Dictionary says, The Bible certainly suggests that angels of different ranks have charge of individuals and of nations. Uh, this concept ought properly to be extended as the dual sense of the phrase host of heaven suggests to the oversight of the elements of the physical universe, planets, stars, nebula, that the angels, if not identical to or at least closely associated with the celestial bodies. But beyond angels in the supernatural realm, the Bible also teaches that the heavenly lights symbolize political powers. That in the prophetic books of the Bible, when the Bible prophesies 
the fall of a nation or of an empire, it often does so using the imagery of the end of the world, a cataclysmic shattering of sun, moon, and stars. Just to give one example, in Isaiah 13, the prophet speaks of the destruction of Babylon, that great city of man, and it does so in this way. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Therefore, I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place. Go to a passage like Revelation 6, where the sun is blotted out, and the moon turns to blood, the stars fall. Every time an empire of man whether it's Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the Ottoman Empire, any time a nation or kingdom of man falls, it is a precursor, it is a reminder that there is coming a great and terrible day of the Lord when God will rend the heavens and usher in new heavens and a new earth. And we need to learn to read uh, world history in terms of this imagery, to put things in some perspective, to realize that these are empires of dirt, these are empires of sands, and these too shall pass. Finally, not only is there a symbolism here with stars pointing us to the angels or the heavenly bodies reminding us of political powers and their fall, there's also a blessed connection between the heavenly bodies and God's people. If you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham had a barren wife, no child of promise, and yet God came to him and said, I will make your descendants as numerous, not only as the sand of the seashore, but as numerous as the stars of heaven. You're, when you look up at the nighttime sky, you are seeing emblems and tokens for how numerous your people are going to be. And this imagery gets picked up by Joseph in his dream, where he dreams of the sun, the moon, and 11 stars, of Jacob, his father, Rachel, his mother, and his 11 brothers. This is an emblem of the people of God. And this is picked up by, by John in the Apocalypse in Revelation 12, where he beholds a woman in distress, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. When you look up at the heavenly bodies, you see a picture, you see a pattern, you see a symbol that points you to the reality of God's people, which is perhaps why the Apostle Paul exhorts us to shine like stars in a dark and twisted generation. You look up at the sky, you're not just looking at flaming balls of luminous gas and hydrogen and helium. No, you are beholding God's cosmic clocks and calendars, ethereal kings and rulers with delegated authority, celestial signs and symbols that point us to political and spiritual realities. But congregation, however we might think that that comes to the end of the purpose of the stars and of the sun and of the moon. There's a final purpose, and that is that they were created 
to reveal God's goodness and his glory. This is the most important reason of all. They were created to reveal his goodness and his glory. God is light, and in him is no darkness, none at all. And when you look up at the sky, and just think about for a moment, we have the Hubble and James Webb Space Telescopes, something that Moses did not have. And when you look up at the Magellanic clouds, binary and neutron stars, quasars, and ring nebula, you are beholding with even greater and closer proximity something of a revelation of the goodness and the glory of God. I say they reveal his goodness because think about it for a moment, congregation. We can predict the rising of the sun each morning and the setting of the sun each evening because of the covenant faithfulness of God. According to the terms given to Adam and to Noah, God is upholding his created order and with covenant regularity. Every time you see a brick fall to the ground, that's not just a bare, impersonal law of gravity. That is a token of God's covenant faithfulness. He is keeping covenant with his creation. Jeremiah 31 and 33 speak of God's covenant with the day and his covenant with the nights, along with his ordinances of sun, moon, and stars. I think that's what the hymn writer meant when he said, summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. When you look up at the nighttime sky, when you see the sun rise of a morning over the water, you are hearing creation scream, shout, and sing, great is thy faithfulness, mercy, and love. But it's also, and this is where I want to end, a revelation of God's glory. First uh, Corinthians 15, Paul says, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory, in magnitude. In the celestial bodies, in the heavenly lights, we find a reflection of the glory of God and of his Christ. With awe, David considered your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. God is our sun and our shields. And all of this is only accentuated by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. As we read the book of nature in light of the book of scripture, we find Jesus coming in the words of Malachi as the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. This Jesus, John saw, had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword in his countenance, his face was like the sun, shining in his strength. Jesus, the day spring is at hand. He's the bright and morning star. The heavenly lights reveal something 
of the glory of God and of his Christ. Well, hopefully this morning we're all convinced that however narrowly speaking a scientific account might be accurate, there is certainly more to the story. There is more to the story. A scientific investigation can tell you about a star's composition, its makeup, but it cannot disclose a star's identity and purpose. According to day four of creation week, the sun, moon, and stars are the lights of God's heavenly lampstand made to rule over the day and the night. When you look up at the sky, you see clocks and calendars, kings and rulers, signs and symbols. You behold signposts that point us to the glory of God. But I tell you, there is coming a day, that great and terrible day of the Lord, when the purpose, however glorious, of sun, moon, and stars will be fulfilled, and we will need them no more. Because John saw a future day when the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. Why? For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Just as the outshine of God's glory illuminated the cosmic temple for three days before sun, moon, or stars were even in the sky. Even so, on that great day, we will say with John and with Moses and with Paul and all the spirits of just men made perfect that the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as the creator, sustainer, redeemer, and consummator, and we stand in awe of your handiwork, the work of your fingers, sun, moon, and stars. And Lord, however glorious they may be, they pale with respect to the sun of righteousness, the bright and morning star, the Lamb of glory in Emmanuel's land. O Lord, may we above all else rejoice in the glory of heaven's King and stand in awe of your goodness and greatness in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. In response to God's account of his wonderful works, let us stand and sing all creatures of our God and King, hymn number 115.